0: Welcome to the 18th episode of Sound the Foghorn. As always, I am your host, Mark DeLuke. And today I am joined by, uh, you know, one of the, I'd say, mainstays, one of the the biggest names on sort of Giants Prospect Twitter, at Giants Prospects. Avi, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well, Mark. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well. Uh, As you know, I'm sure most of the listeners, this is, yeah, SF Giants Prospects week over... At around the foghorn, which has been a lot of uh, me writing about the system. Obviously, my uh, top 31 um, prospects dropped on, was that yesterday? Yeah, it's yesterday, recording this on Saturday. This will obviously go up on Sunday. And it's, you know, I figured I wanted to kind of close the week or at least, uh, you know, wrap up the week uh, with someone who, you know, spends a lot of time, you know, thinking about the prospects, thinking about the farm system. And so, you know, I wanted to have you on for a while and I thought this was. The perfect time to do it. So I guess um if we're gonna kind of jump right into it. And we don't obviously have to you know stick with you know going through a top 31. Well, we can kind of you know go in a different a lot of different directions with this whether we're talking about the farm or the draft or you know really any part of the Giants farm system. But you know, there's a trio of outfielders at the top of the farm or at least they're definitely uh at least I think in most rankings kind of have with Elliot Ramos Hunter Bishop and Luis Matos. And you know, obviously in my ranking, I moved Matos up to number two. I kind of had him a tier above those guys, but I think most people have them, you know, they're definitely in conversation with no one another. Right. And to be fair, you could also throw Alexander Canario um, into that mix. Obviously he had suffered an injury last fall that changes it, but you know, how do you view that kind of trio of outfielders in, in relation to each other?
1: Uh, I think how you have them summed up is generally how I think about them. They're kind of in the same tier, even though they're at different stages in the system, their development, the types of players they are. I think when you once you sort of distill down to a sort of a, a future value or a tier sort of ranking, they sort of end up falling in, in the same tier, I think, even though they come to that tier in different ways. hmm and, of you know, so you had Matos above as the top outfielder of the group. I think I had um, Heliot Ramos, and that's mainly just um, risk-reward. Uh, Heliot is, you know, A. He's probably going to make his debut this year. Matos is probably a year, maybe two years away. There's a lot of things that can go wrong, a lot of, you know, weaknesses that could be exposed. Whereas with Heliot Ramos, he's – Further along, we've seen what his weaknesses are. We've seen him tested at higher levels, um, and we can see a makings of a of an everyday player. Um, with with Matos, we see you know there's some star, maybe even superstar upside there, but he hasn't been through the through the turmoil or the challenges of a everyday full season in the minor leagues.
0: Yeah, no, and so I think- those. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, and Elliot's one that yeah, I talked about in sort of my side by side with the top 30 prospects, did like kind of a primer to kind of give fans a look behind the scenes, I guess, at how I come about this. And Elliot's one that's been eternally kind of a difficult eval for me because he's been so young, you know, at all these levels. Like, you know, even with the suspended season, he's still younger than many of the top collegiate prospects in this year's upcoming draft. He's already played at double, like, already appeared in the Arizona Fall League, big league. Spring training and when he was playing at double a and again I think people overstate how much he quote unquote struggled at double a you know and you know he held I thought he held his own in the Eastern League quite well his strikeout rate did go up um, to a a level that you want to watch but he was still 19 years old for the majority of that season And, and I do, I did go back and forth because I think. You know, on paper, we're starting to kind of see where Ramos's tools are probably, you know, going to end up, you know, when he was you know, younger, you could see some plus speed and plus, you know, power potential with maybe an average or above average hit tool. And I think now we're starting to see it settle where we're probably going to see, you know, above average athleticism in the field, above average power at the plate. And so that's sort of what led me to kind of, you know, not really push him down, but what to, I guess, keep him um, a tier below Matos for me but you know him still being so young i was even tentative wondering am i you know forgetting something or am i uh am i overconfident in sort of this evaluation because there is still plenty of time you know given how young he is for him to take another step that we maybe don't see coming
1: yep definitely and one of the i guess key differences and this leads me to like a question about how you view a, a certain aspect of the evaluation is so Matos out of the four of the quad four top outfielders, the Matos, Bishop, Ramos, and Canario, Matos seems like the most likely, or general consensus appears to be that Matos is the most likely to stick stick in center field. But as we've seen in the major leagues, uh the Giants don't really seem to be prioritizing having a great defender in center field playing. Yaz there. They seem willing to play Lamont Wade Jr. There. They seem even willing to play Austin Slater in center field. So they're not really. They don't really seem to be considering um, an above-average center fielder as a um, as a priority. So I guess with that in mind, how do you view these four outfielders? Um, like, how do you incorporate how their defensive outcome is going to be? Um, when the Giants don't really seem to be prioritizing that. yeah. So, for example, the non-Mato's outfielders, you know, they're going to end up in the corners. That's what we think. But what if the Giants just stick them in center and they don't really care? They feel like, you know, with positioning, with fine-tuning, they can get an average outfielder out of those three as well.
0: Yeah, that, that's, that's a really uh, good and interesting question because – um, you know, I was also someone who was actually thought Ramos was going to be able to stick in center and he's kind of, you know, he, his body's matured quite a bit in this past year. He's put on, a, you know, even more muscle. Um, he was all, he was always a, a bulky frame and that really has filled out over the last year. And that's what sort of led me to go. All right. I think this is the first time where I see him more likely to end up in a corner than center, but I do sort of look at how the giants are developing these players. And, and I also though, Try to sort of hold my guns to all right, what would I be doing essentially if I was in a competitive front office, right? If I was trying to acquire these players, how would I view them, right? And so it is if I think the development is going in a certain direction that stunts potential. And so that's where, you know, this is kind of a different thing, but the Giants, it seems, have been pretty aggressive moving some prospects that like uh, Caravine Castro and Gregory Santos to the bullpen. And these are two guys. Well, I was really high on as starters, or at least with their starting potential. And so, you know, Rusantos was someone who I was probably going to rank among the Giants' top 10 prospects, Castro probably among the Giants' 15. And then this spring, they're pitching, you know, Castro especially has pitched really well this spring, but they got moved quite a ways down the list as soon as I heard they're being developed as relievers, just because I think it, it cuts off, right, you know, a huge upside that I thought was there that is going to, I think, be far harder to get to because the Giants are developing them that way Uh, on the outfield side though the center field defense I'm generally of the opinion one that I do think they're undervaluing center field defense like the Yaz experiment in center field is one I've been pretty critical of and frankly think Yaz is probably a better fit to end up to be a a left fielder right now and I think um, even they're kind of pushing him in right in a way that I think in, you know, in a future, your dream outfield alignment, I think if a Bishop could stick in center or, you know, that Ramos and right, Yaz in left, that could be a a really strong trio. If you're looking, you know, a few years down, down the line, but on the outfield side, it really, their developmental approach hasn't impacted me too much because if a player is being challenged in center field, I don't view that as something that's stunting their potential to be a really good defensive right fielder or left fielder, right? Where, you know, on the pitching side, again, a player not starting, not getting an opportunity to, you know, work every five days or six days and, and work deeper into games. I do think that stunts um, their upside, if that makes sense. So I definitely do put a higher value, at least I think I am putting a higher value on being able to stick at, you know a quote unquote premium up the middle position like shortstop like center field in potentially a way the Giants are not and I think my rankings might reflect that like I think the system I think the Giants might have Ramos or Bishop a bit higher in relation to Matos than me because they believe in sort of the they believe the defensive gap is smaller um, than I do.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's a fair way to look at it.
0: So you know I guess I mentioned Castro and Santos there. I'm curious. Mm-hmm. Because, again, for both of us, right, we're people who, you know, obviously are, are somewhat connected, but primarily are outside looking into a lot of these things. And obviously not having a minor league season made th- this past year, you know, even weirder and you know, a lot of new challenges um, for the both of us. So Castro and Santos were two people, who, you know, we're on both of our radars, radars definitely. And, and, you know, I, I've been someone who've uh, been high on Santos. I think you were someone who was high on Castro as well before this year. And then you have the instructs where they kind of blow up and get a lot of attention. They get added to the 40-man, are in big league camp. I'm curious, what do you think about the decision to move them to the bullpen, you know, like the Giants have done? And, and what do you think kind of the, their potential now profiles in that role? Um, I think that their
1: move into the bullpen, I think it's an unfortunate situation um, that happens to international players where um, they get signed at an earlier age. So their clock to be added to the 40-man starts earlier. And, you know, they're not going to get to the same point as a college pick, as a college draft pick. So you have to add them to the 40-man earlier to protect them. And once you've added them to the 40-man, you kind of need to start getting some innings out of them at the major league level. And the easiest way to do that is moving to the bullpen. So, you know, you had Blake Rivera, I think, who I think is should be part of this sort of group. Um, you have a ranked 12th. and. And I understand that logic because you see him as a starter. He still has a chance to start. But, you know, if Blake Rivera was an international player at his age, I think he would be also be moving to the bullpen. So I think it's just a circumstance of where someone has been signed from and the unfortunate situation of the CBA that sort of, I mean, I understand the reasoning for uh, wanting to protect, for needing to protect those players to put them on the 40 men. But the consequence of that is these players are, hurting their future earning potential by being relievers instead of possibly having a 10, 20, 30% chance of being starters. As to the actual players, Castro and Santos, I think for me, there's a big gap between Santos and, Castro's, and Castro. Uh, when I saw Castro in 2019 instructs, he was already up to 96 and probably was hitting 97. So his VLO... That he's been showing recently isn't that much of a surprise or that much of an increase from where it used to be. Um, I think the big issue for him is that his fastball looks kind of hittable. His curveball, it looks like he's made some improvements to it, but I mean, that's a wait and see pitch because back in 2019, it didn't really look like a, a great pitch or a, a majorly quality pitch. So I see some. Issues there with his survivability in the major leagues, even though his command with a good velo of fastball seems borderline elite. It's still a tough profile to survive with in the major leagues. Whereas Gregory Santos, he's a lot more raw, even though he's probably has more innings pitched than Castro. He seems a little bit a little bit more raw, but he has that feel to spin, that slider is a quality major league pitch, command isn't that bad for what type of pitcher he is and as a reliever command is probably not as important as when he was a starter and um the velo has always been there upper 90s so i see and a fastball that also has issues in terms of how playable it is at the major leagues even though it's has good velo he has that slider which is a real major league quality pitch so i think that's a real separator between him and Kerbin Castro.
0: Definitely. And I, I think you, you make a really good point about Blake Rivera. And again, I think this is a perfect time to, to kind of talk about that because, you know, Rivera does rank number 12 for me, well above uh, both Castro and Santos. So I believe we're 25 and 26 and it's 24 to yet. Yeah, uh, yeah. Santos is 25. Castro is 26. Blake Rivera is 12. But again, that gets back to, like you said, I do think if all three were given a chance, if I, if the Giants came out and said all three were going to get a chance to start this year, I think Santos would be ahead of Rivera for me, and Castro would be in conversation to be sort of right there with him. A- again, like you mentioned, Castro I don't think has quite the stuff that Rivera does, but I think re- he also has more refined command and, and other things uh, in his favor on the mound. But it, again, it gets back to, you know, what I have to look at is how are the giants going to develop this player? And, and, you know, perhaps I'm jumping the gun a bit because, you know, if the giants traded them tomorrow and their new team said they were starters, I'd probably adjust my grades a bit just because of that, but it it is ultimately gets back to, you know, this quick trigger we're seeing. And again, it is primarily with international free agents. You know, I I think about a guy like Matt Frisbee who, you know, is in big league camp, who it seems like he's added, uh, he's improved his split finger. I got to talk to Matt, last year and a profile did um, with a, for Around the Foghorn. And, you know, he was someone who was drafted in the Joey Bart draft. He is drafted. He gets to make his debut, I believe, Salem-Kaiser. He might even get a, a spot appearance at Augusta, but primarily at Salem-Kaiser. And the Giants player development staff goes, all right, Matt, we think you're going to be a reliever. Let's work on these two pitches. I know you've been a starter your whole life, but you're going to work on – Let's, let's get you ready for a bullpen role. And so he spends the off season preparing himself to pitch out of the bullpen. And of course, in that off season, Evans is replaced by Farhan Zaidi. Uh, Kyle Haynes is promoted to the uh, farm director. And, you know, there's some changes in the player development staff. And the next spring they go to Matt Frisbee and go, yeah, we actually think you're going to be a starter. And so after a couple of relief appearances, he returns to starting and now he looks like um, a guy who could profile in the back of a future Giants rotation. Again, Frisbee could still end up in the bullpen, but it just gets back to, you know, if it's the old Giants player development team, he never gets to go down this path. And Roger Munter someone, you know, you and I both know, um, you know, over there are Giants uh, previously at, at McCovey Chronicles. And he's talked about that. He thinks there's a lot of big league starting pitchers out there who are just moved to the bullpen and told to develop as two pitch guys and not really given the chance to to get to that third pitch, to get the ability to work a third time through the order. And I think that could be what we're seeing um, with Santos and Castro. Again, I agree with you. I think both have a high leverage upside. Santos, obviously, in a much more traditional power way, Castro uh, is going to have to, again, maintain this fastball, gain in velocity, probably continue refining that curveball to at least be an above average, potentially flashing as a plus pitch more consistently and then have really good command out of the bullpen. I do wonder if the giants, um, and, and I mentioned this in the reports that I might be overreacting because the giants have been a bit more, you know, creative, you know, maybe they view uh, Castro and Santos in sort of two, three inning bridge roles, sort of non-traditional relief roles where they're maybe getting 70 to hundred innings a season. And that would kind of change the calculus a bit, but I think in traditional roles, they still could project in a big league bullpen.
1: Yep, definitely, and I don't think, at least for Gregory Santos, that the door on him uh, starting is completely closed. It's probably like ninety percent closed, but it would not surprise me to see him plugged into Richmond or or Eugene's rotation in the upcoming season because that seems like the best way to get him innings. And I don't think the Giants see him in the same sort of group as Castro, who seems more ready to help this season. They probably see him more one year or one, one and a half year sort of timeline for Gregory Santos arrival to the major leagues.
0: That brings us to the other thing that is, you know, uh, spring training is obviously going on right now. Obviously we haven't gotten to see all the games, but you know, what do you make? Uh, I was on locked on giants podcast with Ben Kaspic and he asked me, you know, are, who are the giants prospect? Are there giants prospects that you think can, can make an impact this season? And I was kind of hard pressed, you know, I said, Jalen Davis is someone obviously, but you know, th- there aren't, there's a lot of depth, I think at, at the big league and upper minor league levels of this system from, you know, the minor league free agents, the giants have signed the big league roster, you know, are there, who are, I guess the, the young players that you think who we could be looking back on, you know, right now and saying these players are going to make an impact that maybe we don't expect.
1: So I think I have to say uh, now that I'm fully invested in his career, uh, Lamont Wade, Wade, Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, He's, he's somebody that I I think could make an impact because he's shown ability to make changes and adapt and um, put those changes into play and I think that's an important characteristic and he's you know has all the sort of approach to the game that the Giants like so I think they'll give him opportunities and you know he seems competent in the outfield so he's like all around. Decent player that has um, that already, I think, can be a useful major leaguer without showing even more power. But if he can unlock some of that power, like Yaz was able to do when he came over from Baltimore, um, you know, that's a young mid 20s cost control player um, that can be a good maybe third or fourth outfielder for this team going forward.
0: Yeah, and I, he's someone who's getting you know, like you mentioned, the center field stuff. He's been someone projected to be more a right or left fielder, and, and he's played a lot of center field though. And he, it looks like the Giants are going to give him um, a shot there. And I, I again, I getting back to, I, I like you know challenging these guys, and if he can play center field, you know, he could be a potentially really good platoon option, you know, with Mauricio Dubon. Out there as well, you know. I remember looking into the stats, and uh, you know, Wade's not in my top thirty-one. He wasn't eligible. He just kind of eclipsed the plate appearance service time threshold um, that I was using. But, you know, he he was someone who, again, it's his strikeout and walk rates, even in his limited big league sample with Minnesota, is quite impressive. Even though you know he didn't put up big numbers in, in the big leagues, there's obviously a reason they were willing to trade him, you know, like over the past two seasons there of players who've had at least 113 plate appearances. Cause that's how many, you know, Wade had Wade has had. There's only been five who posted a walk and strikeout rate better than him. And it's like Juan Soto, Freddie Freeman, Anthony Rendon, Yandy Diaz and Alex Bredman. Now Diaz is probably the best comp as someone who's, you know, contact oriented, doesn't have big time power. Maybe isn't in the stardom of those other players, but, you know, if Lamont Wade has a you know, out, you know know outfielder's version of, of Yandy Diaz, that's a really, really good get for the Giants.
1: Definitely, especially for just giving up a sort of middle leverage, low leverage sort of relief arm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: That was a good pickup.
0: G- getting to the bullpen, you know, we, we mentioned, we talked about uh, Santos and Castro. Castro pretty much is almost set to go there. You think there, there's a chance that Santos gets another chance uh, to start potentially this year. Uh, Richmond or something to that effect. And I'm, I'm hoping that I, I hope that's the case um, because of the, you know, the reason I mentioned before, I do think there's a legitimate uh, mid rotation upside there, but you know, of the bullpen arms, you know, that gets to the Camilo Duvall's and I guess a glut of minor league free agents. And, and I guess major league free agents, the giants signed Jose Alvarez today. They obviously signed, you know, Matt Whistler, Jake McGee in the off season. They pretty much brought back everyone from last year's bullpen. You know what do you think of the the group of relievers the Giants have heading in to this season? And you know, do you think a guy like Duvall is able to pu- is going to be able to push his way through the through kind of the the depth to get um, into the big league uh, onto the big league roster? Uh,
1: I think Duvall definitely has the stuff to get major league right-handed hitters out. I think the question is, can he get left-handed hitters out? And you know, the last time we saw him pitching in the you know in the minor leagues um, even though he was completely dominant against right-handed hitters he was sort of pedestrian against left-handed hitters. so you have to see you know he has two issues getting left-handed hitters out and where how does he handle those outings where he has no command and he just and everything sort of falls apart for him and then it bleeds into his next two three outings until he writes the ship so so I think there's some mental sort of toughness maturity aspect that needs to happen and also stuff wise he needs to be able to prove that um, he doesn't need to be dominant against left-handers but he needs to have an approach that can lead to him being be able to use uh, in a high leverage situation because Mm -hmm. right now um, I don't think he has shown that ability quite yet even though you know against right-handers he looks completely unhittable and he sort of fits into that Profile that I see the Giants uh, sort of targeting this offseason for the bullpen, which is the commonality appears to be sort of weird release points mm-hmm. and sort of making the hitter uncomfortable and trying to give as many different looks as possible. And Duval fits cleanly into that, but he needs some work, I think, to get a reliable option in the major leagues right now.
0: Yeah. And then how do you kind of contrast him with, you know, the Rule Five selection, Daniel Nunez? This is obviously his first year. In out of the bullpen, you know, because he was a Rule Five pick, he's another. He's a perfect example of someone we were talking about, you know, how international free agents often get moved to the bullpen earlier than probably is best for their development because of um, the collective bargaining agreement and and, you know teams' unwillingness to kind of have patience with those players. Mm -hmm. He he's looked really good in in at least what I've seen um, this spring, but obviously he's another guy who hasn't really pitched much. Out of the bullpen, he hasn't obviously pitched against upper minor leagues minor league competition. You know, how do you see his season playing out? Do you think he's someone who the Giants are going to be able to keep on the big league roster for the whole year and not feel like they're wasting or, or not feel like they have a roster spot that's essentially not contributing?
1: I think that's a good question. It, I think Nunez is kind of a difficult one because I like to think of a, I like to think about it in a backwards way, which is why did the Mets who had the same info mm. the Giants did, way more info than the Giants did when he showed that, you know, velo bump in Strux. Yep. Why did they still leave him off their 40-man roster? It's not like the Mets, I mean, the Mets are, you know, a really good team, but the back end of their 40-man usually has no. um, some removable pieces. So what were they thinking? Or what did they not see in Nunez? And does that have an impact on his ability to stick in the major leagues? Um, I don't know what that is Uh, to me initially when I saw the pick, I was like his slider is sort of like a slurvy sort of slider that the Giants don't really like. They like that more sharp vertical drop slider. Um, So I was like, okay, this is sort of a slurvy slider. So he's probably like a fastball, 80-75% fastball and use a slider to maybe get people to chase. But, you know, yesterday, Kurt Casale was saying that his slider looks like a wipeout pitch. He's one of the best sliders I've seen. I mean, it's hard to know how much of that is just team propaganda versus, you know, he's made some changes to his slider that make it look a more of a major league quality pitch. So I think it's a, I think it will. He's somebody that we just have to see more of, um, and more of the new version of Nunez because he's made some leaps since the last time that we've been able to watch him, which was in 2019.
0: Yeah, and I also think there's something we said for. You know, Castro, Santos, Nunez, all these players have not been relievers, obviously, for much of their professional career and have never had to be a reliever for a year. Right. Like there is something we said for, you know, we think of wear and tear in terms of starting pitchers that, you know, 130 starts, you know, by the end, can they hold up for the whole season? But there's a legitimate wear and tear if you're a guy. Who is going to be asked to come in for one inning and through high octane, right? Throw pretty much a hundred percent effort on all on 15 to 20 pitches almost every other day for a six-month season, right? You know, Nunez, you know, saw a pretty significant uh jump in velocity, you know, and, and that was, you know, he he in some ways isn't too dissimilar from Danny Jimenez, the Giants rule five pick last year, right? Who had seen a velocity jump and then sort of as you know he came into spring training and then there was the break and then the extended spring training the Giants kept him on the roster for a bit but that velocity jump kind of fell back to earth and the Giants opted to essentially give him back to the Toronto Blue Jays you know Nunez again like you said we have to wait and see we have to see can he hold this velocity can his, is his slider a premium pitch or not and it is going to be interesting to see how that plays out.
1: Yeah, and I think one clue that we might get is that the Giants are kind of willing if they see that, hey, this guy doesn't really have it right now. They're quick; they're really quick to move on. Yeah. So if they if they persist with him, even if he you know struggles initially, and if they persist in him, then we'll know that, okay, they have some real belief behind this guy, and they're going to try to find a way to, you know, get him past that ninety-day deadline, um, past which you know he he can be optioned
0: Mm -hmm. and
1: um, moved around as they
0: want. Yeah. And, you know, you, you bring up an interesting point and this is more on the big league side, but how do you feel about the giants kind of knee jerk approach with prospects or, or, you know, post prospects, whatever you want to call it, you know, we saw Jalen Davis get 12 plate appearances to start next last season, had six strikeouts. He's option. You know, we can think about, you know, in season the Zaidi's first season, right. Whether it was Connor, Joe, or Michael Reed or, or various guys who, you know, the team was very, you know, quick to demote, you know, Mike Yastrzemski, remember, struggled early on the giants were actually going to option him to AAA prior to the series against a series against the Rockies at Coors field. He has a fantastic series ends up because of, I think it was an injury or an illness and ends up staying on the roster. And of course, you know, being a, a borderline, you know, big league star. And I just wonder, you know, are the giants in their effort to give as many players as they can opportunities preventing themselves from getting a full evaluation of any of them. I mean, that was something I was critical of, of the Sabian and Evans regime for a long time, because I always felt like there would be a player like Jared Parker or an Adam Duvall, you know, who, or Mac Williamson, for that matter, who, would perform in the upper minors, maybe have an injury here or there. They would get called up, but because the giants wouldn't say, you're going to be our everyday outfielder for a couple months, even for the, the next three seasons, we'd be left wondering is Jared Parker, the guy is Mac Williamson about, you know, to, to take the next step. And I wonder it would have been, I thought it would have been easier for the organization if they just committed to a guy for an extended amount of time, then it would have been easier to move on either way. Versus having this kind of musical chairs at the big league level, you know, is there an advantage to to that approach that maybe I'm not giving it credit for? Or are you kind of in the same boat as me? Uh,
1: I think from, I haven't tracked this, but mm-hmm. the general sense that I get is that the Giants uh, have sort of two approaches to the players. They sort of scoop up off the waiver wire. I think one is try to catch lightning in a bottle where they like something about the player, but. They don't really believe in him that much, but they think, okay, let's give this guy 20, 30 ABs. Maybe we can get some value out of him. And when he struggles, we can move on. And I think that's what they sort of, that's how they saw Connor Joe and Michael Reed. And then they have another class of players where they have long-term belief in the player and they're willing to um, give the player, you know, multiple chances uh, and persist with them because they think, this person can, has some ability to turn things around and be a productive player. So I think they have, even though to us acquisitions are acquisitions, I think when they internally acquire a player, they're sort of classifying them into these different buckets where they've already have a low evaluation of this player, but they feel like, okay, there's some value to be squeezed out of this player for an immediate need right now. And maybe there's a, a small chance of this, acquisition also paying off long
0: term Mm -hmm. yeah i think that that is a good point where that and this is because you know people you know fans we aren't behind the scenes right so so we don't necessarily know if you know it's the same with draft it's the same with any move right especially at at the lower kind of i guess the lower risk propositions right you know what even things like the draft right is are the Giants saying Patrick Bailey's our guy, we're going to get a steal? Or are the Giants saying, you know, we think Patrick Bailey and Mick Abel are pretty similar prospects, but Patrick Bailey will take a lesser bonus. So we can, we think we can do more with it. Like every decision, you know, could have an infinite number of explanations that mean drastically different things about the organization, but we are left on the outside looking in, obviously, you know, you're trying to talk to people who maybe do know, but for the most part, you're trying to left with, all right, you have to figure out what was the logic behind each move? What was the, I guess, dogma, right, that led them to make a certain decision?
1: Yep, exactly. Uh, That's just the nature of the beast.
0: Yeah, and so thinking about, you know, the international free agent class of, I want to say it's, right, 2018-19. That's the one that includes Marco Luciano, Luis Matos, um, Pomares, I think, Rainer Santana, a number of prospects in the system. I mean, this is an international free agent class that looks uh, really strong and, and could produce a number of big league players. But in the two years since, you know, the Giants have obviously added a bunch of, of international free agent talent who we haven't get gotten to see uh, you know, play in official minor league games. And so I, I wonder for you, you know, what do you make of these past two international free agent classes? Obviously, there's a lot of conditionals, there's a lot of wait and see, but who are the prospects, if any, that have particularly caught, caught your eye that you may be quicker than with others to say if they have a strong month even in their debut or something like that to say, all right, this is a player I, I really do see as someone who could be a big prospect in the system.
1: I think someone like Manuel Mercedes will be a, a interesting player uh, to see how the Giants approach him initially. If they put him in the rotation, um, I think he immediately becomes a more interesting player to me because I heard in Instructs, as an 18-year-old, he was sitting 96 miles per hour wow. and was up to 98. So this is an 18-year-old kid who has projection, signed for, I think, 400K. So if they he seems like a reliever, like straight off the bat. That profile sort of seems screened reliever. But if they put him in the rotation and put him in the rotation, even that can leave him in the rotation, even after he struggles, I think they will show that, okay, they believe that he may have a bit more potential at least early on um, than what he appears, which is pure reliever, hard velocity Mm -hmm. with with probably a slider um, to back that up. But for the, you know, the other big names, you know, Everson, Artiega, Anthony Rodriguez, um, Diego Velasquez from this recent class, it's really just impossible to say anything about them because, you know, nobody's seen them um, in a long time. And nobody's seen them in a competitive situation from even longer time. So who knows where they are, um, where they, what they've been able to do in these last 18 months, 24 months. Um, so it's it's really just I think even speculating is difficult because yep. there's just so little information about about what their lives
0: have been like you know the past two years. No, that's totally true, and that's something again. You know the you know th- there's all the the baseball part of it, but there is really a a really depressing side of this that there's ultimately you know we've had basically a year and a half where the vast majority of minor league players. Have had no team sanctioned and and really team, and most importantly for them, team invested in development, right? They haven't had access to a team facility or a team coach or a team trainer or all these different things. And what that meant is that the burden of their development has fallen on themselves and their own means. And again, you know, people like, and, 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 you know, when we talk about like, you know, a lot of kind of the, tree, You know, we see this is not really a baseball thing, but you know throughout right it, it gets back to you know what's a player's work ethic their discipline all these things, but there's legitimate other reasons like that I think are being vastly undersold to where again if a player could not afford right, to dedicate themselves to working out five, six days a week, or couldn't afford to move to a location where they could have live at bats, like that's going to have a real consequence on a lot of careers. And again, is what made the cancellation of the minor league season, all these things. So, um, and frankly, then the following condensing of the minor league season or not minor league season of minor league baseball, you know, so, uh, have such, I think, you know, resounding and, and, and negative consequences for a lot of players and for the sport in general, because, you know, teams don't invest in minor league baseball to the level they should. And, you know, we can, you know, people can point to the stadiums, people can point to the staff, but, you know, this is something that when we talk about like minor league players essentially making less than star- starvation wages and really less than even that, you know, for what is what ostensibly is a full-time, 12-month job if they're, you know, going to maximize their development, you know, it's just a a frustrating thing that, again, it's another example of how the COVID-19 pandemic just made something more stark and more dramatic than it already was.
1: Absolutely. I think the teams that were sort of investing more in their players um, prior to this will see some benefits from um, their investment even more than they would have already because not because their investment has sort of covered up all the issues that have happened in the last 18 months. It's just that the other teams that haven't yeah. made those investments are going to be even further behind. Yeah. So that Delta will probably be larger than it would have been without the pandemic. So in a, in a sort of cynical way, you can think about it that, Hey, if the giants were one of those teams that made those investments. They could come out of this better um, they could have a better outcome for the future of their franchises because the teams that haven't made those investments are further behind than they would have been.
0: Yeah, and it's going to be interesting. And it's going to be, again, where, yeah, I mean, we've seen it in spring training, right, where Sam Long, someone who I don't think anyone was necessarily thinking of as a notable name other than, you know, he was went to Sacramento States from the you know, Bay Area where, you know, he's coming back and he'll probably pitch in the minor leagues. Then he comes into camp. Hitting the high 90s, throwing two potentially above average pitches in the Giants, saying, you know, basically that he's going to get a chance to start in the minor leagues. He ends up very high in in my rankings, but he's someone who, you know, he, he got to take advantage of it. He was able, and again, credit to him taking advantage of the opportunities he had to, you know, maximize his development, to further himself. And I think we're going to see if we do get a minor League season this year, we're going to see some drastic changes in trajectory, unlike we really have ever seen for a lot of prospects, because we're not used to you know, having essentially a player have one and a half to two years where we really don't have much to evaluate them on. And then they get to face, face, you know, what we believe to be equivalent competition. Like, I think we're going to have some big time prospects who come in and really struggle in ways that they aren't expecting. Their stock really quickly drops. I think we're going to have others that are going to come in and absolutely explode in ways we aren't expecting. And the difficult part of that point is going to be is this something that's going to sustain itself or is this something that, you know, once these players get back into full time, they're going to regress to what kind of the norms were before. All of these are questions that we really have no precedent to answer right now.
1: Absolutely. And you no, know, that sort of leads me into a question that I had for your state of the sort of giant system, mm-hmm. which is, so what do you think, you know, the, under the Zayedi regime, what do you think they like the giants competitive advantage is in baseball? Because, you know, every team, Wants to build through their farm system. Every team is investing in their player development, or most teams are, and most teams are, you know, investing in their analytics department. So all teams are doing the same things that the Giants are doing. So I guess where do you see the Giants' competitive advantages over these other teams that will allow them to sort of um, be ahead of the curve?
0: Well, I'd say the easiest answer and the one I think we've seen, I guess the only one I can say with a lot of tangible evidence, right, is and this was something I'd heard uh, from people who had worked with Zaidi before the Giants when the, when they were kind of talking about his time in the, the Dodgers organization and kind of contrasting him and his, you know, I guess I quote unquote ideal approach to someone like Josh Burns or Andrew Friedman, who were two other of the kind of trio at the top of, of the Dodgers organization when he was there. And what they basically said was Zaidi is all in the roster minutiae right that he is going you know to not let any player who's available on waivers who they think they could get through the you know potentially to the minor leagues a minor league free agent like anything that he's basically dedicated to filling out every piece like getting his hands on as many players um as possible essentially and I do think that's something that on its surface seems very basic and straightforward, but it's something that is really uncommon like you don't see there are a few front offices, you know, that get kind of the reputation right of, of always kind of being willing to you know are moving guys around constantly. But Zaidi is one of those few right now, and I think we, we've seen again them take advantage of that, where they've struck gold with you know players like Ustremski and potentially with Sam Long and things to that effect. But you know Lamont Wade, uh, Jr. Uh, could be you know next in kind of that line. So I'd say the the most obvious one, the one I've seen most evidence for, is that they are really going to leave no stone unturned. And again, I think that is the right approach. Like I do think. If it weren't for Major League Baseball's hostile takeover of the minor leagues and mandating these very rigid rules and approach, that if each team got the flexibility that I think they should have to have as many or as few minor league teams as they want, right, within certain levels of parameters, right, that I think the Giants would be maxing that out. Like, obviously, we see they have two Dominican Summer League teams this year. They're going to have two, or they're going to have two Dominican Summer League teams for the first time. They had two Arizona League. Teams for the first time, a couple seasons ago, and I think they would have kept uh, short season Salem Kaiser. They, they would have maximized their rosters everywhere because I think Zaidi believes. You know, there are a lot of what ostensibly is lottery tickets out there that a lot of teams just are choosing not to play because they don't want to, you know, whatever it is, they don't want to pay the salary, they don't want to have another coaching staff for a 25-man minor league roster. And I think Zaidi was someone who would have advocated investing in that apparatus. So uh, even... Though that might not be, I think that would have been a place where they could have had a much larger competitive advantage than they will because of kind of the restrictions that have been put in place. But I'd say that's the most obvious one, or, and the one I'd put, I'd hang my hat on. You know, the others when it comes to, you know, like giant spending, right? You know, people made the argument the giants could do all the things you mentioned, but use their big market you know, quote unquote, stretch their, uh, flex their muscles to, you know, be like the Dodgers. I think you're someone who's been kind of hypercritical and reading into a lot of comments coming from Giants ownership to success. We don't really know if that's going to be the case, if they're going to let Zaydi do that. I think that's a reasonable question. I'm not sure of that either.
1: Yep, absolutely. I think, I think you've sort of nailed it on the head, which is from the information we have available. It looks like, you know, Zaydi and company are, are strong at it evaluating or identifying overlooked players and you know you mentioned Jastrzemski, Sam Long but you know they've made they've sort of identified overlooked players within the system that have already exist that were mm. already you know in the system like Tyler Rogers, he was in the system for yeah. years he was in A for years he was passed over in the Rule 5 draft I don't know how many years um, he had strong numbers in A, but never got a chance yeah but you know the Zaidi regime they didn't overlook him and now they're you know that that's sort of paying off, you know, not in that great way, but you have a useful middle reliever who has, who fits into the profile that you're looking to build in the bullpen. Um, yeah, and it's not just, you know, Tyler Rogers. you know, somebody like Caleb Berger, the Giants had him in the system. They were, look, they, they sort of just saw him as an organizational guy um, with the Zayedi regime. Um, they understood what type of pitcher Berger needs to be to be successful. Um, And then they made that switch and they gave him opportunity in the major leagues when he showed that, Hey, I I have another leap in me. So they don't seem set on, Hey, this guy was like a 30, this guy was like a mid round pick. He was a senior sign. He was whatever. So we don't really see him as a major leaguer. We just see him as minor league fodder. They don't seem to have that approach. They seem to be evaluating every player with the idea that this guy um, has ability and let's see how we can, use them in the major leagues to help the Giants win.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I think that's something that I do commend Kyle Haynes and the Giants development staff is that that's something that is fairly obvious. You know, when you hear him talk about prospects, like he is, I want to say this was an interview he did with Melissa Lockhart last year or a a couple years ago, I guess at this point maybe, where he talked about like, you know we don't care about your prestige or where you rank like we want to help every player in our system become the best player they can and I genuinely believe that in a way the Giants are investing in trying to do that and again this isn't some selfless act like they're under and I think it's with an understanding that you know we aren't as good as uh, at player evaluation at scouting and projection as we like to think like again I think for more often than not you're betting on the scouts you're betting on projections you're going to be right but they are not 100% not close to 100% and Zaidi I think while he's you know credited with this money ball quantitative background I actually think his biggest asset or or his most um, you know I guess the kind of biggest box in his favor is that he very clearly is incredibly flexible in approach. And his goal is to maximize everything, whatever that is, whether that's, you know, in-person scouting, whether that's, you know, quantitative analytical stuff, whether that is, you know, uh, training coaches in more advanced or modern, uh, you know, physics, you know, and and things like that. I think all of these things are where he is not coming in with a rigid, um, you know, quote-unquote economics mindset in the way we we I think think of it in in baseball I think he's he's coming in with a much more open mind to other things
1: absolutely and I hope you know that's that's I guess the goal for the Giants is using that and that paying off to in the end what matters which is you know
0: wins yep yep what do you I'm curious what because uh, I kind of touched on, you know, Giants ownership and, and what do you think this like payroll is going to look like going forward? Obviously, you know, right now we know what it is and we know the Giants haven't spent in free agency. We, you know, reports are the Giants made a run at Bryce Harper. I, I believe that to be true. I don't, you know, I know some fans think it's a conspiracy <laughs> that they just did for press. I, I genuinely believe, you know, they made a, a pursuit of Harper. Do you think we are going to see Giants ownership spend at the levels we saw them spend, you know, in, at the end of the Evan Sabian tenure, or do you think that is kind of a thing of the past that they want Zaidi to keep kind of a, I mean, obviously, you know, inflation, more revenue, things could change, but like 140, 100, kind of $60 million dollar payroll.
1: Yeah. Uh- the cynical part of me wants to say, you know, they're going to keep payroll down to 150 million because, you know, more money not mm-hmm. spent is more money to the ownership pockets, you know. But I think they will, you know, ramp up payroll. The one, I guess, concern that I have is, you know, and that's something that was brought up in Greg Johnson's interview with Athletic, which is um, this sort of obsession with of trying to avoid um, having players on the sixth or seventh year of their deal and they're not good anymore and Yeah. Um, They're not uh, fulfilling the value of their contract. Like that seems sort of like sort of foolish to me because anytime you sign a free agent, you're trying to get that value in that first two to three years. And if they're bad in year six, who cares? You've already picked up so much value. Hopefully in years one to four and you're hopefully that's leading you to win games now. Like who cares if six years down the road, Um, this contract is hobbling you, preventing you from being a competitive team. I care about being competitive now. And let's try to find another way to be competitive six years down the line when that contract becomes a, a hassle. But it seems like they're taking the approach of we have to be, we have to be always be making sure that we can remain competitive six years down the road, which, you know, which means that you won't take big swings now because, taking big swings now may affect your competitiveness in the future. So I guess my concern is, is incrementalism going to lead the giants to success in a division as tough as the NL West, or is a more high risk, high reward approach the way to take um, the division? Because um, as long as you keep taking these swings for singles, you're already so far behind the Dodgers and the Padres that how are you ever going to catch up to them if, you know, you don't make big leaps um, with where the team is in terms of talent and everything else?
0: Yeah, I I totally agree with that, especially, I mean, you know, I think you could make the argument that they could still find success if it was just the Dodgers, but the Padres and the Padres' ownership, and again, you know, we've seen these things before with with, um, ownership groups, you know going uh, 180 degrees every, you know, a year, every year. But the the Padres seem like they're willing to spend, maybe not to the extent of the Dodgers and Giants long-term, but definitely to a level they haven't in the past. And I think that gets to the point of, you know, I've credited Zaidi for accumulating a lot of chips, you know, like if we make a poker analogy here, right? That when he was hired, you know, the Giants were low on chips. They didn't have a lot of what was considered valuable big league talent in turn on their contracts. They didn't have a lot of prospect talent. And over his tenure, in part because of the talent he's acquired, in part just because players he already had, like Elliot Ramos and Marco Luciano and Joey Bart, have taken steps forward and their stock has increased. They now are starting to have quite a few chips. Like, they're no doubt, like, you know, far uh, more reputable. You know, you can look at this team and see a much more competitive, deeper roster today and in five years, right, than you could when he was hired. But we haven't really seen him, like, quote-unquote, put any chips on the table. We haven't really seen him seen him take a gamble. And again, I think he's going to be willing to do it. But, you know, I use A.J. Preller with the Padres as a constant example because he was someone who this is not his first go at going all in. When he was first hired, he signs James Shields, trades for Matt Kemp, trades for the Upton brothers, trades for Craig Kimbrell, and it really didn't work out. And they had to tear down and start again. And he's done a commendable job of doing that, right? But, you know, until we see Zaidi make those win-now moves or fill out, um, you know, a roster with some potential, quote-unquote, some potential stars, right? Some uh, potential franchise-changing players, we don't know what his approach will be or what the, the what that will look like. And I also think to get at kind of the other point, you know, about that six, seven year fear. I just think, and and I understand why owners and teams do it. It, it frustrates me to no end that, that I think media, and again, when I, you know, I, I've probably been a, a culprit of this occasion as well, where we really overstate how much one or even two bad contracts really have a, you know, have power over an organization's payroll. Like you think about Albert Pujols, who's you know, cons- you know, been this albatross on the Angels' payroll for you know how many years now, quote unquote. And you know, he's probably, you know, I want to say it's thirty, maybe thirty-five million dollars a year. Thirty million dollars a year is not very much money, and you when you're looking at the scope of a big league payroll, right? You know, a, a big league average payrolls have historically run anywhere from one twenty to one hundred fifty million, with the highest, you know, uh, eclipsing two hundred million by a decent margin. Like one big contract, you know, or even two big contracts, aren't you know things that are going to you know have these massive consequences. And even one thing, you know, looking back at the Giants. Right, thinking about all the, you know, the Longoria, the Belt, the Crawford, the Posey contracts, Samarja, Cueto, none of those players were making more than twenty-five million dollars a year. In fact, most were making like sixteen to eighteen million dollars. And so, you know, the Giants are obviously going to have all this payroll flexibility. But I also think it is worth looking back and realizing, you know, this situation wasn't as bad as we made it out to be. And I think because when we look, when we're going to look back on things, when we think about. You know, we think about the early 2000s and when Moneyball, the book comes out, is changing how we viewed, you know, baseball and decision making from a front office perspective. I think the Astros are going to signify, I hope, a transition in a different lens where it becomes the moment where a lot more people realize and start reconsidering Um, kind of what the extremes of Moneyball implied and led to and I think the Giants because of you know when things kind of blew up when they were bad you know had all these big contracts they were kind of at the peak where everyone was looking at you need to value prospects you need to value controllable talent you need to value youth all these things a big payroll and not young players is the worst situation and so the Giants I, I'm not, again I'm not saying they made every move correctly. I'm not saying there wasn't reasons to critique the Evans regime. There definitely were, and you know, like moves like the Casey McGee trade, Denard Span signing, you know, all of these things are rightfully criticized. But I wonder if they got a lot more flack than they deserved. And we look back on it, and now Zaidi has essentially a blank slate, all these prospects and all these things. But I wonder if things had just been allowed to play out under Evans, if we might have ended up, you know, somewhere close to here anyway.
1: Yeah, dude, and one thing to consider when, you know, those future contracts and them being albatrosses is, is in the Giants situation, they're planning on having, you know, this huge crop of minor leaguers filling the major league roster who are going to make them, you know, competitive with the Dodgers and Padres. Well, those guys are going to be, you know, cheap. Yeah. So who, who else are you going to be paying on the roster? So, I, I mean, I think the issue is they see winning now as not really an exercise that's worth engaging in where they can sign guys that don't really make you better when Marco Luciano is at his peak of his career or Luis Matos is in the major leagues they, they may not be good anymore by then but they can help you now they can they may they might help you you know sneak into a wild card spot they don't seem to be valuing that because they're they seem to be considering that hey if we sign this guy right now uh, we have to give him a four year or five year deal um in 2024 we may be prevented from signing some closer uh, that can help us, you know, push us over to a 95 win team. Like they're, you know, making those humongous, far into the future sort of projections or assumptions about what they would need and what they need to maintain now um, to be able to do those things in the future when, you know, it's reality is really unpredictable and baseball is even more unpredictable. Um, so you should be trying to, in my opinion, there's players every day, every year on the free agency market that can help you win games and that can help you get into the playoffs. And those players should be targeted at all costs. And every year you should be making sure that at least you have a chance at going to the wild card. Um, when the, you know, when the Dodgers sort of went from, uh, the transition from the the McCourt era to this new Mm -hmm. ownership, they they didn't really sort of cut down to the bones and try to sort of build up from the ground up. They were investing in major league talent while their minor league talent was making its way through the system. And then they moved on from the, their major league talent and let the, um, their, talent, uh, their minor league talent come up and up to win games. But the whole time, the whole period, they were winning. They didn't have this stretch like the Giants are in where they're just before the season even starts, you can just make sure you can just write them off. As winning as not being competitive in the division and I think that's that's the frustrating part to me
0: yeah and I, I do want to you know say is I, I do think the Giants are in really good position and it, it is one more of at least where I'm at I'm in the place of you know concern and caution but I am still somewhat tentative because you know the Giants have made moves you know that financially you know they've used right like they acquire will Wilson ostensibly the for paying, you know, uh, Zach Cozart $13 million, right? Like, you know, that's an example of them using, you know, financial flexibility to make their system better. They really haven't gone or made any moves that I would call a salary dump under Zaidi, right? When they move Mark Melanson, they're getting back a, a, a really good prospect in Tristan Beck. That, that's at least definitely surprised me. and I think surprised a lot of people like they are, you know, whatever I want to say about the Longoria, the Crawford, the belt, the Posey contracts, they could have found ways, right. To force these players off the roster to, you know, pick up some of the salary and save some money, you know, in salary dumps that wouldn't have netted the team much in return. And they haven't done that. So again, like, I'm not saying that it's for sure they're not willing to do this. It's just until they do it until they venture and make a big signing until they are willing to trade some prospects for a premium, big leaguer whoever that may be we're left wondering is if it's going to happen and again I think it's likely that this next offseason we're, de- we're going to see that happen it'll be interesting to see who they target how do they structure a contract you know if they do sign say a you know I'm just again a Corey Seeker and insert whoever here you know do they prioritize giving them a five-year deal but maybe with a really high average like are they willing to go like five years 35 million five years maybe even 40 million or something instead of doing a eight nine, 10 year with a you know 25 30 million averages you know I'm, I'm just spitballing here but I think that will be interesting to see but again it's just we're left for kind of this next this season right will when will they pull the trigger on that you know huge move
1: absolutely and the Greg Johnson and others have said you know fire anxiety has you know full autonomy to uh, make any move he wants. We don't have any sort of financial mandates or strict financial mandates towards him. But, you know, something that, you know, happened this offseason, a specific move that made me sort of question that, which was, you know, Adam Modavino sort of being dumped from That's the true. Yankees to the Red Sox. And you know, the Giants were all over that move last year, Zach Cozart, as you mentioned. And this is an even better sort of pickup opportunity and Giants weren't involved. So that made me think, OK, Would the Yankees have, if the Giants were involved in this, would they have preferred to send him to Boston or would they have sent him, you know, to the National League? They would have probably preferred to to send him to the National League. So why weren't the Giants involved? You know, it's cash for a prospect and a player who could be, you know, sort of rebuilt. Um, So that makes me question if the fact that Zaidi has full control over what he wants to do with payroll is actually true or it's just some sort of ownership PR where, they don't have to take any of the heat and since Zaydee has built you know, trust well-deserved trust within the Giants community um, if he doesn't want to spend money then he must know what he's doing yeah you know, that, does that make sense like yeah no I,
0: f- I totally and and right there I actually wrote about the the Adovino move as well as one I was surprised the Giants didn't make and uh, the another one even though the Yankees Packaged a, a low level, but a prospect without, you as well, even one that wouldn't have required a prospect when Brad hand got put on waivers that um, I, I was one who said the Giants should have made a waiver claim and you know, in hindsight, you know, again, this is part of you can see the logic, but why the reasoning is concerning is someone could say well if the giants had claimed Brad Hand they don't sign Jake McGee and they got Jake McGee with longer term you know control and at you know a lower rate but it's it's about again when we get to the this is kind of the give and take of right Zaidi's willing to turn over every stone quote unquote at the lower level but he hasn't been as aggressive it seems like in pursuing more costly players, right? Like I mentioned, you know, on the waiver wire, my league free agency, it seems like every player Zayed is willing to dive into, take a chance on. That hasn't been the case when a player's been making even like a moderate big league salary, like Brad Hand, who one year, $10 million would have been nothing on this Giants payroll, given, you know, how ownership is spent before. He ended up signing for more than that, you know, in, in the offseason. You know, uh, Kevin Pilar last year, right? The Giants non tender him and he ends up signing for far less than he would have got. Through arbitration and all that, the Giants, you know, it ends up being fine, but it just gets back to, you know, if the Giants were truly maximizing their payroll flexibility in a way that I think someone like Zaidi would want to, you would suspect they would pay a guy like Pilar and then immediately call all the MLB teams. And say, so we'll pay 80% of this salary. If you give us a prospect for him, right? Same with Brad hand, right? Even if they don't view Brad hand as someone they need for the bullpen, you claim Brad Hand, then you call up every team and say, we'll pay eight of the $10 million for Brad Hand's contract. What kind of prospect would you give me for Brad Hand for one year at $2 million? You know, that's the thing where I do feel like that's a move I expected to see more from Zaidi that we haven't yet. And I'm right there with you. That's where I think I wonder if ownership, again, is willing to go to a certain extent, but only with or willing to raise payroll to a certain extent but perhaps only if it's coming for a Bryce Harper. Like they're not willing to play this kind of marginal incrementalism game to the same high payroll levels as they might be if it's for a star.
1: Absolutely. And I guess the simplest way to, I guess for the listeners to think about it is, you know, you can believe in the flexibility. You can believe that sort of approach, but any dollar that's spent below something that, below like, let's say the CBT line, uh, which can impact, you know, how the Giants can make moves or make moves in the draft or internationally, any dollar that is spent, that is unspent below that line, you know, is is a wasted resource. Yep. Uh, is a wasted resource in making the Giants better. And, you know, there's plenty of players that have signed one-year deals this offseason. Was Anthony Descafani the best one-year pitcher signee this offseason? Like, what prevented the Giants from signing somebody, um, I don't know, Charlie Morton, but Charlie Morton, you know, sort of wanted to stay in the East Coast, but a, a better pitcher on a one-year mm-hmm. deal? Nothing. I mean, the reason they signed Discofani is he's cheaper. Yeah. So how can we sort of think that uh, it's sort of hard to reconcile the fact that, A, the Giants are saying they want to be competitive, they want to make the playoffs, they say that there's no limits on payroll, but then when they're signing these players on one-year deals, they're not even going to the top of the group they're going somewhere in the middle james
0: paxton james paxton's a name right i think i I throw in that exactly right
1: and even if you have to overpay these people yep even if you have to overpay somebody on a one-year deal or one plus one deal or even a two-year deal who cares you have so much money under the payroll under the you know whatever fictional or artificial cap line so the fact that they're not doing that means there's some sort of ownership directive towards not spending payroll or the giants are so full of themselves that they believe that (laughs) Hey, Dave Scafani is actually the best pitcher that was available on the market that was a, uh, that could be signed on a one-year deal, which I don't think they would believe, or they're that arrogant to believe. So, um, so it's it's like it when you try to piece together everything that they say together, it doesn't really fit for me in a way that makes sense.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I'm curious for you to bring this back to to the farm system and prospects. Mm-hmm. Who are Th- this is kind of the classic, you know, wrap-up podcast. Who essentially who are the players that fans don't think about or don't know? Who you think could become big names in the system next year? You know, who are the players who maybe rank in the 20s or maybe aren't even ranked in a prospect list who are top 30 prospects? This kind of thing that that you're thinking about and going, you know, I, I think that if this player comes in, you know, they have the tools, they have the ability to really uh, catch people off guard.
1: So this is my favorite topic uh so i have a few players that i sort of uh, noted down here um i guess the one that some people probably have heard of is trevor mcdonald mm-hmm. um you had him uh let's see 27, at I 27. Yeah, yeah yeah 27 um i think i had him like a bit higher at around 14 and that's mainly because um i'm a believer in him i think he's shown three quality pitches that he can throw for strikes he has that weird sort of arm angle um and there's that arm angle sort of creates a deception to left-handed hitters. Mm-hmm. So I think there's real starter potential here. And, you know, the system is sort of lacking in that.
0: Definitely. Group.
1: So I think Trevor McDonald is somebody, I think I can see making a leap. Um, one name that's sort of way below the radar is Chris Wright, uh, left hander mm. out of Bryant. Yeah. He's athletic. He was a two-way player at Bryant University. Uh, a uh, lefty fastball is play, plays up the velo. He's in the low-ish 90s, but it plays up due to the characteristics of the pitch. And he's shown some um, breaking ball feel. So I think maybe he's probably going to be in the pen, but maybe there's a small chance he gets a chance in the rotation. But even out of the pen, I think he's somebody that can move quick. He fits into that Caleb Berger sort of profile. Lots of fastballs. And throw in a few curveballs mm-hmm. to keep him honest. A couple of other final players: Keaton Wynn, right-hander pitcher. Uh, I, I'm I think I'm much higher on him than a lot of other people, mainly because he's very athletic. Uh, he was in high school. He was um, he played football, basketball, track at a high level. Um, he was only pitching at a relief in community college, so he hasn't had much experience starting. But he's been a starter in the Giants system. He's shown good control. The fastball has been in the low 90s, but he looks like somebody with his arm action and his athleticism and his build that I see. I'm, I want to I place a big bet that he, he can make some below gains mm-hmm. and they'll allow his off-speed stuff to play up. Um, and finally, uh, Grant McRae, outfielder, super athletic, plus speed in center field. And he's shown some field to hit. And he's quite a bit – he's quite raw, but a combination of those three tools, I think, make him pretty interesting.
0: Definitely. McDonald and Harrison – I mean, McDonald, I'm going to group in with Kyle Harrison. Obviously, Harrison was a bigger prospect, got a a bigger bonus. But I think it's – I'm really interested to see just how they develop because they're two players where at the time of the draft, right, the Giants – Clearly believed in them, you know, that was where they had kind of a deviation from it seemed like the consensus right what most industry of you know Harrison was sort of second or third round prospect the Giants gave him first round money right the McDonald was considered a fourth to sixth round prospect the Giants gave him third, you know late second round money. And you know, obviously you always have to overpay a bit for prep pitching, but it's clear that they favored these guys who maybe haven't had the premium velocity, but, you know, like you mentioned with Keaton Winnie, even right, like some athleticism, you know, they both, you know, uh, in the case of McDowell saw uh, velocity jumps, but feel for some breaking balls, you know, cons- consistent um, around the zone. I'm curious to see how these pitchers develop, even at, at the college level, um, Nick, uh, the lefty from NC State. I'm Nick Swiney. Right? Yes, Nick Swiney, right? You know, who, who, you know, again, a guy who had a breakout uh, final season at NC State when he moves to uh, the rotation, you know, but again, I mentioned in my trends with the draft, right? They went, they've gone spin over speed. And I'm mm-hmm. curious to see how that plays up to to throw a few more uh, outfielders uh, onto the mix, because, you know, I know people can't get enough of the, the kind of sleepers. Armani Smith is someone who I've, been high on i i i feel like in some ways you know he is kind of uh, i guess the most simplest way is if you kind of scale back hunter bishop's prospect profile that's kind of what smith is really uh, a good athlete can probably play and he's unlike bishop he probably is a corner outfielder already but i think he can play a really good right field if not left field has big time power but struggled it struggled to show up in his first two years in college then had a breakout junior year, not to the level that Bishop did in the Pac-12, but Armani Smith in the big West. He was also young for his class, had a really good junior year. And then that that Salem Kaiser team, he hit 300 slugged 450 there. I was curious to see how he would, how he uh, debuts when he gets the full season. Um, and, and the other guy is one who I understand why people have their concerns about because PJ Hilson, you know, he has not hit very well in his two seasons at uh, the Arizona league, another outfielder, but he's someone with plus plus speed, a plus plus arm. He is someone, the only uh, player, when I say I can understand why the offensive potential, there's a lot of question marks about, he has a long way to go developmentally, but even if his hitting, if he could become a below average big league hitter, a 40, 45 grade hitter, I think he could still have a really big impact because of his work on the base paths and because of his potential defensively, he could be someone in a sort of Kevin Kiermaier, Billy Hamilton type of player who, who is able to add value in a way far differently from, you know, someone like uh, uh, Armani Smith or, or Hunter Bishop, but still think if again, and you know, we, we, don't know, we haven't seen him play for some time, but he was still young, a high school selection in 2017, I want to say maybe 2018 Someone who I'm really curious to see if he can take those steps forward.
1: Absolutely. Um, I think one time in instructs against the Rockies, I want to say, Hilson was leading off first pitch. He sees, he hits it into the sort of left field, center field gap. Center fielder sort of misplays it, but not really. It was like not even an error level of misplay. Yeah. And Hilson runs home all the way around uh, for inside the park home run. <laughs> Some of the, yeah. like incredible speed. And Armani Smith, I think Eric Langenhagen on his sort of giant sort of Twitch broadcast said that Armani Smith had a good camp. But I think one concern with him is, for me, a player with, with like a 30% strikeout rate in the Northwest League as a Definitely. college player is immediate unless you prove it otherwise in your next level up. It's, it's that like the history of a player with a 30% strikeout rate as a college player in that league it's pretty bad. It's almost even 25%, even 20% is not good. So he has, you know, quite a ways to go in terms of approach and discipline, but the power is real and the adjustments that he made in his junior season are real. So he's a, he's a guy to pay attention to.
0: Yeah. He's someone who's definitely, it's one of those where you see he took a jump from his sophomore to junior year. He's going to have to take another jump, to, to really become, I think, an impact player. But, you know, again, when we've seen someone break out in a certain way, it leads, lends you to believe they're able to make adjustments to potentially do it again. The last number I'll leave you on with P.J. Hilson because this just is, because, again, he hit 220. You know, he had a 310 on-base percentage, and it's Arizona League, so the season's short. He stole 13 bases that season. But if you divide that by the number of hits, walks, and hit-by-pitch, basically the times he for the most part would have reached base. He stole a base roughly 28% of the time he was on base. Now, obviously there's errors and all these other things to keep it at, but that's just an incredible number. I mean, this is just someone who I, I really hope he puts it together um, just because that, that I'm, I just, you know, stealing bases is fun. Like it's just fun to watch yeah. that. It's, it's fun to watch players um, who can do that. And Like we talked about at the beginning of this podcast with the giants believing some, you know, potentially lesser, uh, Athletes and lesser defensive players can handle center field, you know. But it is just really fun to see a guy cover a lot of ground, you know, run down these catches, make highlight plays. So, I, I do hope you know, Hilson's a guy in the system, one oh, a many, but Hilson's a guy I look at and say, Man, I'd really love to see him get a chance to do that one day,
1: absolutely. And even you know, if this hitting thing doesn't work out, you try you know, try switching to switch into the mountain because I think, as an amateur who's into the 90s, yep, off the mound, so he can play center field defensive replacement and also
0: pitch out of the bullpen. There there we go. That's that, a way to
1: carve out a career.
0: There there we go. So that is Avi You know him on Twitter at Giants Prospects. Thank you again for for joining us. Uh, you are a must follow for for Giants fans who are, who are interested in the big league team but especially on the minor league side. You always have some of uh, frankly the, the, the best uh information out there on par with Pretty much anyone, especially when it comes to the Giants system. So uh, thank you for taking the time uh, to talk to me today.
1: Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me on.
0: So this has been the 18th episode of Sound the Foghorn. We're bringing the around the foghorn. Uh, around the fog. We're bringing San Francisco Giants prospects week to an end. Thank you all for, for reading the content and reading everything we put out. Really uh, appreciate it. If um, you leave a five star review on this podcast, remember to leave a question and I will answer it on a future episode with my guest. I am your host, Mark DeLuke. You can follow me on Twitter at @maddelucci. That's M-A-D-D-E-L-U-C-C-H-I. And you can follow Around the Foghorn at Round the Foghorn. A coast. And of course, go to AroundtheFoghorn.com for all the latest Giants news and rumors. Thank you all for listening. And until next time, stay safe and have a wonderful week.